Hi, everyone. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. I am Dr. <laughs> I almost said I'm Dr. Scott. Who are you? <laughs> Identity crisis. Oh my gosh, we should leave that in. Hi, Dr. Scott. In. How are you? Hi, Dr. Shiloh. Do you need to, do I need to get you some medication? You know, I was thinking about <laughs> spontaneously doing like such a lovely intro for you, like you do for me. And I just screwed it all up by mm. over identifying with you. Exactly. You wanted to give yourself that compliment. Hmm. <laughs> What do we have here? That really goes with our episode today. Wow. It does. Yeah. Hi, guys. <laughs> okay, first, though, let's get to some housekeeping at the top. Yeah. 2023 is here. And before you know it, it's going to be time for our visit across the pond for CrimeCon UK. So... We would absolutely love for you guys to come out and experience this one-of-a-kind event. Plus, if you're a fan of the show, we are totally going to make it worth your while. We are doing a main stage presentation as well as a crossover panel with What's Up Doc, a true crime documentary podcast. How perfect is that? And then, of course, we will have a booth so we can meet you guys. So please get your tickets at crimecon.co.uk and use promo code CONFIDENTIAL for 10% off your tickets. I will, of course, put the link in the show notes so you can just click on it and get it right there. But we'd love to see folks from so great. overseas. Yeah. And if anyone here from the States wants an excuse to take a nice little vacay, come see us. Come with us. The name Esther comes to mind for some reason. I don't know where that comes from. But oh, I DM'd Miss Esther and I said, you will meet us for drinks. She better show up. And yes. she's like, oh my God, when are you going to be here? We're paying for cocktails. Exactly. <laughs> Hey, so our last episode, episode 123 was a vintage case, and we focused on the disappearance of Sister Amy. And in that most recent episode, we really explored the mystery of the month-long disappearance of the Western world's first female televangelist, Amy Simple McPherson, also known as Sister Amy or just Sister. McPherson was a Canadian Pentecostal evangelist and media celebrity in the 1920s and 1930s not only in Los Angeles, but around the country. She was famous for founding the Foursquare Church and becoming a major Los Angeles icon. Right. McPherson's disappearance and subsequent reappearance, stumbling out of the Mexican desert, led to this huge controversy and speculation that her wild story of kidnapping was generated really just to cover up an affair. And in our episode, we explored the underlying issues of the weight of celebrity, which we've covered before, but also the emotional challenges that it brings, which probably contributed to her seemingly faked kidnapping and wanting to disappear for a while. So it's yeah. a real good one. I promise it doesn't have any murdered children in it. <laughs> like mm, yeah, what a relief. What a relief. Ones. And we don't have any today too, which is great. No we murdered don't. kids. Yay. No, yay. We actually don't have any murders today. Yeah, perfect. But Attempted. it is pretty toxic. Yeah. Very toxic. What are we talking about today? I want to start with just a few examples I'm going to throw out there. A former police officer pays a Little League pitcher $2 to hit a batter in a game while he was on duty, resulting in a leg injury on the child batter. In another example, a parent killed another parent after an altercation on the ice between two young hockey players. The fight and the subsequent beating death was witnessed by 12 people, including a total of six of their combined children. Okay, maybe there was murder, but I promise that's the only it wasn't <laughs> kids. point on murder. On murder. Murder. Right. How about this one? The Greater Toronto Hockey League bans a woman for one year from all of its arenas after she partially exposes her breast and shakes her breast from side to side. Her goal was to taunt parents of the opposing players of her 11-year-old son's game. Her actions were also witnessed by all of the players on the ice. A sports dad charged with disturbing the peace after he intentionally focused a laser pointer in the eyes of an opposing goalie during a state playoff game. So this is just a smattering of the examples of behaviors and pathology that we're exploring in today's episode. We won't cover all of them, but the ones that we pick are doozies. And the topic came straight from a suggestion from Lauren, one of our Patreon members via our group chat on Discord. So thank you, Lauren, for this great idea and this really stimulating conversation that thank we're having over Lauren. there on discord yeah so we're talking about toxic sports parents parents behaving badly at their kids sporting events i wonder how much of the violent sports fandom mentality we talked about back in episode 51 is going to cross over into today well that's exactly where we're going to start because yes let's go way back to episode 51 of la not so confidential where we focused on sports fanatics and it was really some very very violent encounters in that one but we utilized the research of dr daniel wands 
who outlined a scale of fanaticism known as the sports spectator identification scale, as well as common factors that link the profiles of individuals who commit or engage in violence during or around sporting events. Plus, we also know from that body of work covered in that episode that the tendency for sports spectators to internalize team successes while externalizing team failures is a very real thing. Yeah, that's very real. And please hold on to that as we go through this episode. But these common factors among the people that they find that have perpetrated these types of crimes are over-identification with the sports team to the point where they believe they are on the field. So there's Mm -hmm. just this real diffuse identity issue going on. Very, very common factor is substance use. Generally, that is an alcohol-related event, which of course lowers inhibition and then acts as this cue for aggression. Then there's also a huge factor of displacement of stress from other life areas that is then refocused and concentrated on the sports teams themselves. And there's a direct correlation between having devotion to your own football team, as well as your kids sports team. There's definitely parallel process going on there. Yes. And this is, you know, something that wasn't just plucked out of the air by us as a you know, seemingly important or interesting concept, but it's a real problem. And it's so problematic that in a 2020 Washington Post article, Rick Wolf, who's a sports parenting expert, and he's author and host of WFAN's radio show, The Sports Edge, was quoted as saying, there has been a huge drop off in the number of available referees and officials in youth sports due to the obnoxious behavior of parents. Additionally, a study by the National Federation of State High School Associations showed that around 80% of new referees give up the vocation after only two years of doing it because it's such a toxic environment. That's really awful. I mean, you think about those kind of positions are filled by people who want to promote sport and promote collegial relationships and all the great things that come from the experience of team sports. And because of these obnoxious parents, they're just leaving. They're like, nope, I'm out of here. Which by the way, is also happening with a lot of primary educators as well. Elementary school, middle and high school teachers are like, I'm out of here because nobody has my back. So let me talk a little bit about what the role of parents are in sports. We can really boil it down to three strong bullet points. First of all, you got the parents' role is to provide support for their kids and the other players on the team. This can, of course, include financial support, emotional support, or the most important factor of presence to cheer them on at their games, cheer their accomplishments and support and give validation to their, maybe not their necessarily their failures, but their shortcomings. Yeah, or their attempts and their Exactly, their attempts. You, You know, don't yell at them or berate them for having those shortcomings. Another point, point two, would be helping kids set realistic goals. That's just parenting across the board is you should be teaching your kid how to have insight and critical thinking about realistic goals. I mean, while it's really vital to help kids helpfully learn to strive for excellence, it's just as important to help them understand that they're not going to win every game, that they may not be the star player. And there's this really experience and gain to be had through the process of teamwork and setting individual personal goals. And then probably most importantly, parents are role models for their kids, both good and bad. Kids soak up that experience like a sponge by observing how the adults in their life manage difficult emotions and life challenges. So showing good sportsmanship, respecting officials and opponents, and then exhibiting fair play, these are critical and vital lessons that are generalizable by children to all their other life domains. They're learning through every action that their parents make, both positive and negative. Amen. Spoken like a true family systems clinician. Love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) So when this all goes horribly wrong and we hear about cases similar to those in our opening today, what's the cause? Because we kind of get it when there's like a lot of alcohol involved and when adults are watching professional sports and things like that. But You know, I think some of the questions come up, how did a parent or parents get to that place where all rational thinking just appears to recede? And on the most basic level, overbearing sports parents become emotionally over-involved in what they perceive to be the desired outcome for their children's athletic activities. And while enthusiasm, support, and concern for a child's well-being are part of the drive, for those with underlying emotional issues, 
that's when we see it get out of hand. Absolutely. We're going to be talking about some diagnosable areas, but really just remember that a lot of the diagnosable stuff that we mentioned today is really more about flavors. So it's a flavor or a tendency that may be mixed with physiology and hormones and then accentuated by alcohol, substance use and other environmental stressors. So it's really this hodgepodge of things that people should just be aware of how they get triggered. So I wanted to start with a case before we get into all the psych issues, because we're going to mention a couple of cases here. But the first one is what I think is a really incredibly egregious example. I mean, what makes this for me more striking than the others is that the parent acting out is not driven by a spontaneous lack of control or a lack of impulse control. Instead, this is an act that required forethought. It required planning, implementation, and then collaboration with his child. So in 1996, Dr. Steven Cito, who was then aged 48, pleaded no contest to conspiring to commit aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. In collaboration with his teenage son, Mike, Dr. Cito sharpened a helmet chin strap buckle to a razor's edge. The result was that at least six teenaged football players who came in contact with Mike Cito during that game were sliced and bloodied. One student was left with permanent scarring and nerve damage to his forearm. So this was essentially the helmet that his son was wearing, but it was sharpened so that it would injure other players when they touched it. Okay. So offhand, what do you think the charges were? And let me tell you what he pled to and what he got before we answer what the charges were. Dr. Cito ended up pleading no contest and was sentenced to 48 hours of jail time and community service. And then his son, Mike, got probation. So one of the huge ironies here is that this occurred at a parochial school. (laughs) And then I really think we have this issue of a real pathology here. I mean, we're seeing all the indications of it. He is, Dr. Cito is a dentist This is a medical professional who knew about the dangers of bloodborne pathogens, especially like this was 1996. So still we're talking the height of the AIDS crisis. And both Dr. Cito and his son were charged with conspiracy to commit an aggravated assault. And the normal sentence for that charge would be 18 months. However, clearly both were let off with much less. And I'm sure money and status came into that. I'm glad you said that because I I am absolutely positive that money and status and community power played a big role. Since I was putting the notes together for this, I do want to elaborate on something that the chance of transmission of HIV in an incident like that is actually very, very low. Mm -hmm. However, that was not really known at that time. True. And the idea that we should all be careful about that kind of stuff, that the idea that a medical professional throws that out the window is just, I have a real hard time wrapping my mind around it. But during the hearing, his son was 17 years old, football player. He admitted to the children's court judge that he wore the buckle that caused the injuries to the other academy players on October 12th. And he was aware that it had been altered, which Mm. is clearly to me an attorney directed choice of words. So here's the quote from the court proceedings. I wore a helmet with a buckle that had been altered. It was sharpened. You know, I'm just shaking my head because one, how do you think that you're not going to get caught for this? Like all these other players are just going to be bleeding and coming off the field. Like... So when the 17-year-old was asked by the judge why the buckle was sharpened, his response was, quote, it was sharpened to protect me from harm. And then the judge presses further with the question, well, by whom? And then Mike replies, my father. Dr. Cito then claimed that he, not his son, had indeed sharpened the buckle because of his belief or opinion that his son had been roughed up in an earlier game with another school. So I guess let's just take it out on this other school. It may or may not be true, right? I mean, that's what happens in football. I'm not justifying if he was being gang rushed or piled on or anything. I I get that. But let's go back to that choice of words. It was to protect me from harm. It's not defensive. It's offensive. (laughs) Yes, thank you. So going further under questioning from the district attorney, the student acknowledged that he knew that the buckle was going to cause injury in that state. But 
he did temper or alter his acknowledgement with the statement that said, I did not know that it would cause serious injury. And the judge sentenced the teen to one year supervised probation, 100 hours community service and an 8 p.m. curfew with the stipulation that if he broke any condition of the probation, he would be sent straight to the New Mexico Boys School at Springer for a term of two years. So it's a pretty big consequence hanging over your head. And I think appropriate for a 17 year old that clearly was influenced by his father for a lot of this. Well, Dr. Steven Cito was given that 48-hour jail term by the state district judge, as well as an order to perform 400 hours community service and to serve one year unsupervised probation. So Dr. Cito was assigned for his community service to work with children who were either fully diagnosed with AIDS or tested as HIV positive, as well as rural family dental programs that were administered by the University of New Mexico. Good on the judge. I like that twist. I do too. I mean, and also much needed, very, very much needed services. The mother of the academy player who was pretty severely wounded, she said she was satisfied with that sentence, but she was still angry at Dr. Cito, not just because of the serious injury to her son, but because the dentist never apologized to her other than mouthing the words, I'm sorry, during the proceeding. That cut required 10 stitches for the slicing of his forearm. Her son now has permanent scars on his arm. And she said, it has caused my son to become more cynical and angry. Totally understandable. Sure. Yeah. Well, Dr. Cito offered a carefully worded apology to her at some point saying, I'm so sorry that this incident took place. And (laughs) she replies... So am I. She read a statement from her son saying, quote, I have permanent reminders of Cito's ill judgment. I can forget about the incident momentarily, but I'm constantly reminded every time I wear a short sleeve shirt or something comes in contact with my left arm. The now scarred skin's sensitivity reminds me of seeing my arm stuck to the side of Cito's helmet. The incident has caused a decrease in my level of hard play because of a fear that I will come in contact with this kind of sportsmanship again. Interesting, just victim impact statement there, you know, kind of outlying how this wasn't a one and done thing. It really has had a lasting impact. And, you know, check the dentist in your area because Dr. Cito and his son, Michael, currently run a family dental practice. You know, despite the diagnostic stuff that we're going to be talking about and behavioral issues, we're going to talk about, I really do hope that in the intervening decades that have occurred, that there's been more insight and, you know, an exploration of personal responsibility than what took place during the proceedings. Because saying something like, I'm sorry that this incident took place Uh. is distancing yourself from the responsibility of what you've done. And I would absolutely lay money that the attorney told him to say that as to not, you know, be open to liability for civil procedure or something. But but it's Mm -hmm. also, you know, it's just those the poor victims, all of the victims, you know, it's like I'm saying that your feelings were hurt. (laughs) I'm going to be an asshole, but I'm really sorry that your feelings got hurt. Like take responsibility. I know. But we do have some really good research. And thank you, Dr. Jims Omley. I wrote to him at the last minute and he sent me PDFs of his research articles. I love you, guy. You're just wonderful. So research by Omley and Lavoie in 2009 utilized interviews that they had done and surveys as well of 773 individuals. And it was almost evenly split between male and female parents, which is very interesting. And that study shows that the most problematic behaviors appear to be motivated by, unsurprisingly, anger. Mm -hmm. So the study did a thorough investigation as to the source of the anger from these parents, from the perspective of these parents, not all of whom were offenders, but those that describe specific instances in which they got angry during a youth sporting event. According to Dr. Omley, he says, quote, many parents get angry because they think their children are being treated unfairly or carelessly by officials, coaches, or the other players. So I'm kind of conceptualizing this as like, there's some parents going into mama bear mode. Oh yeah, yeah. But then it's coupled with like really terrible coping skills and probably high, high levels of impulsivity. It has to, because you think of (laughs) you're in this public forum, right? You know, you're in front of all these other team members and parents and acting out that way. So I completely am in alignment with you. Yeah, it's stirring something emotionally, which is like, okay, you understand, but you can't just let that take the lead and and pull you around and result in these behaviors. So in the in the research, which was 
a grounded theory analysis, they yielded three types of perceived offenses. So they categorized them as uncaring, unjust, or incompetent. So this was, again, how the parents saw their children being treated. Thinking about the the ref or yeah. the coach. Okay. Yeah. Like they just don't care about my kid or for my kid. That was unjust what they did to them or that ref is incompetent, Okay. <laughs> basically. And then they kind of looked at, okay, here's four categories of perceived offenders perceived by these parents that they, they polled that there were referees, coaches, other participants, and then other parent spectators. So there's all sorts of people triggering this anger for them. And here's a great quote that we pulled from the the article itself from an athletic director. So this is direct experience here. Quote, speaking personally while working as an athletic director, I had a handful of experiences dealing with crowd behavior, said Chris Robinson, assistant director of athletics and a member of the sportsmanship committee for the Virginia High School League. He goes on to say, quote, in most cases, spectators were upset over perceived incorrect calls. I encourage athletic directors to indiscreetly address those concerns, to not call attention to the person or persons you're dealing with. Usually a nice request to be mindful of their comments solves the issue. We also made PA announcements prior to games, asking fans to be respectful of both teams and the game officials. So that's how in his jurisdiction, he was saying at least that's the starting tier. I love that. And I think there's also another thing that's mentioned in some of the research that we did that some games are even going silent where they're saying that no, you can't oh. say anything, which would be kind of odd. I mean, that would might take some <laughs> of the enjoyment out. But, you know, you think about what extremes the parents have probably gone to that is requiring them to take, you know, this much of an action. I find that fascinating. Yeah. I saw in one of the articles, I, I didn't end up putting it in our notes, but there's a, there's a woman who's a former, you know, Olympian and she and her wife talk about how like they get really into their kids sports stuff, but they're like, we realize we need something to like calm us down in the moment and put ourselves in check. And so we bring lollipops to the games with us and just like suck on our lollipops and chew on them if we get pissed <laughs> and it works for them. It's like, okay, cool. That's a great coping skill. <laughs> that's fantastic. And that's creative. And yeah. yeah, I think that's really smart. We are going to include in our show notes links to some of these articles. Dr. Olms has another article that is really fascinating as well, where they studied male parents and male viewers of sports events and took saliva tests in order to measure the level of testosterone yes. that was being produced during watching these events. I thought it was so cool that they were even going to just biologically, hey, what's going on here? And let's explore this a little bit. So what they did is they ended up taking samples, saliva samples from men prior to them going into watching games and... They wanted to measure testosterone and see if that changed at all. Because if we're looking at anger, you know, looking at emotionality, right. I think they're also wanting to know, okay, is there a biological basis for this? And they did find that men who already had higher levels of testosterone going in, they seemed to be more triggered and would get angry. But when they looked closer at fluctuating levels during the game, there really weren't any significant findings as to like, oh, okay, when they feel a perceived loss or that something was going wrong or something was unfair against their kid that wasn't like shooting up the testosterone levels during. So it's sort of predisposed to whoever was coming in, which totally makes sense, right? right. I mean, that person's going to be triggered regardless and perhaps not choose a great way to deal with that feeling. But I just, it was fascinating that they even went to these levels to try and look at it. Yeah. I mean, you would hope that some parents would already be aware of like, I tend to get triggered by these things. And, you know, they're, I'm, I would be I'm very curious about some of the people in that study, too, that might be juicing on their own as well. You know, <laughs> one of these boo-rah dads that's also kind of hiding his little package from the mail. Right. You know, from Canada. 
exactly. From Canada, quote unquote. But moving on into some of those emotional mental health issues that are definitely going to be at play here at times, I am going to make clinical observations that I think that this is an expression of narcissistic tendencies, and especially in the, the concept of the narcissistic extension. So some parents with narcissistic personality disorder or strong tendencies or flavors tend to treat their children as extensions of themselves. So just as a review, although we've talked about this many times, NPD or narcissistic personality disorder is a mental health condition that is characterized by behaviors like a need for admiration, for praise, a need to express grandiosity and their view of self-importance, and then a real strong conviction of being special and unique. And most disturbingly, and this is where it gets pathological more than just traits, a pattern of exploiting others for personal gain. So there are several types of narcissism that can influence a person's thought process, emotions, and behavioral patterns in different ways. And one of the things that we know now about all the personality disorders is it's not just nurture. It's not just the way right. people were raised. Across the board in personality disorders, we are finding more and more because our machinery gets better, yep. that some people tend to have structural issues in their brain that will predispose them to develop personality disorders. Yes. Endlessly fascinating. I can't wait to see what we figure out about that in years to come. Oh, yeah. So many times people with NPD will see their children as a virtual extension of themselves. They are unable and generally unwilling to see their children as separate and individual needs that evolve and grow over time. And instead, they require praise, adulation, respect as an emotional energy source from their children and as projections of themselves. So for pathological sports parents, they are unable to discern the difference between their needs and the child's. The child's performance ends up being a reflection of who they are as parents. Or individuals. Yeah. The parent as an individual. Yeah. So when children are small, a parent with NPD can sometimes intervene in activities that a child may be learning at their own pace and they might be placing inappropriate levels of stress on them. Then to make matters worse as the child ages may have completely unrealistic expectations for what the child's capable of. It just can kind of go on and on. As the child grows, it kind of becomes a different evolution depending on their age and what they're involved in. Yeah, thank you for phrasing it that way, because it almost seems like there's just this warped perception on the part of the parent of what their child is capable of doing because they're projecting all of their crap on what their yeah. expectations are. And we see this in other areas too, like stage moms or pageant moms that mm -hmm. can, can kind of do this as well. NBD parents and guardians don't adjust their style of parenting to match the appropriate maturity level of the child. And by doing that, they send conflicting messages to their kids about what is expected of them in a number of domains. It could yeah. be sports, it could be school, it could be interpersonal relationships, all sorts of things. But but let's go a little deeper with this exploration of pathology to get some descriptors of, you know, what does an NPD parent look like? So I mentioned it earlier, there's this grandiosity, these unrealistic expectations or unrealistic views of their capabilities, talents, intelligence, and achievements. So as a result, they may place very high expectations on their child. And then that confidence that the adult feels can really very quickly transmute into arrogance, which is never, never a good thing to exhibit in front of a child. Yeah. And then we also see attention seeking behavior too. A good portion of the population, of course, enjoys occasionally having the spotlight on them. But those with NPD have a need for all of the attention in a social setting. And having a kid who's a star soccer player on you know, their school team can provide a version of that necessary like feed or source for that attention-seeking behavior. And then we also have self-centeredness. It's even more attention. Right. So following the idea of grandiosity, also NPD individuals have high levels of assumption about the interest that others should have in their lives. And it's not uncommon for people with NPD to focus so much attention on themselves that there's never much interest in the lives or experiences of others. You know, I, I can't help but think of our listeners that have been, you know, listening to us for so long and have become really acquainted with these concepts and or even newer listeners. If <laughs> 
mm-hmm. you've ever had a narcissist in your life and you just don't know it until you know it. Yeah. And then it's like these scales fall away from your eyes. Where you're like, oh my gosh, this person never made room for anybody in their life. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's a very interesting experience. But building on what you said, parents with NPD may have a tendency to make conversations about themselves about their personal successes or their perceived personal successes really and then what's happening in their lives and there's also this trick that NPD parents play with emotional manipulation they may act in a way to cause the young athletes to feel guilty or ungrateful for their attempts at help and actions and they'll go so far as to hold this over your head as proof that the child is unappreciative for things that they may not have even asked for. Oh God, that's so twisted. Oh, it just, it hurts. It just hurts. I mean, so while the external image of the family can be really impressive, it doesn't mean that the parental role models are going to be reflected in the contentment or the emotional fulfillment of the child, which is really sad. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to kind of summarize this and bring this back because I interpret what we're saying here as essentially means that parents in these really active sports kids' lives, they are deriving their own self-worth from their child's achievements as if the children have become a reflection of that parent's own identity. So like the kid's success in sports is a tangible way for the parent to measure their own success. If my kid's a winner or a champion, then I must be a champion too. No, that's perfect. Perfect. And what's really messed up is the converse is true yeah. as well. If my kid is a failure, that means I'm a failure and I'm not going to be a failure. Right. I, it, I, it, this is not appropriate. That for can't, it's not, be. can't be. So that means you can't be. You go tell that coach this or I'm going to go mm-hmm. give the coach a piece of my mind. All right. So shall we move on to another crime example. Oh, yeah. On February 12, 2012, a then 42-year-old Winthrop, Massachusetts man, Joseph Cordes, was charged with disturbing the peace after directing a laser pointer directly into the eyes of the opposing goalie of his teenage daughter during her game. Cordes was quickly discovered to be engaged in this activity and was ordered out of the arena by a school official. For some reason, the governing body of the high school sports in Massachusetts denied the appeal raised by parents to re play the game after Winthrop's three to one win, adding insult to what could have been a really horrific retina injury to the middle school goalie. So in comparison to our last example over the sharpening of the helmet buckle that slashed the team's opponent's arms, a laser pointer's impact can be less immediately noticeable. You know, our eyes are extremely sensitive to laser radiation and extended laser exposure is capable of causing severe and permanent vision loss. So even at the level of short-term exposure, laser pointer beams are capable of causing visual loss that might not be permanent, but can definitely last for months. And while the retina can repair minor damage, a major injury to the macular region can result in a permanent loss of visual perception or even full blindness. And there's limited treatment available for laser retinal injuries. And by the way, in Los Angeles, if you flash a laser at one of the helicopters flying around, you are in deep shit. Well, that's, I mean, it's not just here because that aviation is usually federal offenses. So that's pretty standard throughout the country. And yeah, this topic gets me fired up because I've had somebody in my life deeply impacted by this. So, you know, this isn't just like, you know, you're playing with a laser pointer with your cat. There's some huge, really serious injuries that can be done here. So like you said, there's an issue of immediacy. However, you know, even the temporary distraction or temporary blindness of an athlete engaged actively in a sport, like the responsibilities of a hockey goalie, could have resulted in physical damage having nothing to do with her eyes, right? So during hockey play, a puck flying at your head is capable of reaching speeds of 100 miles per hour or more when it's struck on the ice. So, you know, there's a lot of potential here for stuff to just gone sideways. So the eighth grade Medway Ashland goalie, Catherine Hammer, explained her experience by describing, quote, it's kind of like when you look at the sun and then you look away, you see that spot and you can't see for a couple of seconds. You just shake your head and try to get it out of the system and just keep focusing, but it's difficult. And additionally, I just want to add, you know, this doesn't even cover the brain damage, the nerve damage that can be done with some really high powered lasers that can leave a victim disabled. And we're talking about the potential for life 
changing injuries with lasers to the eyes. I'm so worked up by this one. I mean, I yeah, me too. I don't know if I'm more worked up about this one because it's a young woman or a young girl. And I mean, each of the each of the examples we've given so far are egregious. I'm just you know, <laughs> I've been working in this field for a long time now, and I'm used to people with lower ability to function and severe mental illness. I'm I'm used to them making poor decisions yeah. and acting impulsively. So when I hear of parents or people like acting in this way, it really disturbs me on a primal mm -hmm. level. Mm -hmm. So Winthrop Superintendent John Macero stated to a local news radio outlet, I don't know what that person was thinking. Why would you do that to both teams? Both teams, they've earned the right, Medway girls, the Winthrop girls, to have this opportunity to perform in a game for someone to come in and do that inappropriate action was uncalled for. I think it's important for Medway to understand that we are just as upset at this situation too, because it kind of puts a black eye on Winthrop and those kids don't deserve that, nor does Medway. Interesting choice of words. Puts a black eye on Winthrop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so while Mr. Cordes wasn't arrested, he did receive an order to present at court for a charge of disturbing the peace. And he was banned from all events involving his daughter's school and told CBS Boston during an interview that he felt like a complete jerk for engaging in this act that humiliated his daughter and said, quote, my daughter, the humiliation I put her through is sickening to tell you the truth. So I'm going to say just with that statement, I don't know if there was more. He's feeling some empathy for what he put his daughter through. He's yes. calling himself a complete jerk, which, yes, that tracks, sir. Good job. I hope there was more responsibility and apologies to the victim and, you know, to the sports community in general. But at least this is something that we have here. Well, it's yeah, that's I'm glad you brought that up. And certainly in comparison to our last example, I mean, you know, just the words alone. And of course, we're dealing with all the research that we pull from different interviews. And I will be the first to admit that there may be things that were left out of the research. But comparing the language on these two, I think this one, like you said, that recognition that I caused an emotional reaction in someone else does show empathy. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I can give him that point. But back to some of these flavors, again, there's this over-identifying with the child that is paralleled with over-identifying with sports teams. So, and of course, no surprise here, even though Dr. Olney's study showed almost a 50-50 split, it does appear to happen more with male parents. It's not exclusive, but there is a much higher incidence of male parent-related incidents that involve assault threats, ADW, which is armed with a deadly weapon, and even murder. Yeah. So why? You know, I mean, part of it has to do with the presence of really strong male role norms in our society today. And within that sort of paradigm, there's, you know, the development of emotional intelligence in men is not emphasized. And I would go so far as to say that there are a lot of men out there that are insightful and want to develop that emotional IQ and put work into it. But there's this seems to be this wide gulf between the people that are able to do that and see the need for developing it yeah. and those that actively choose not to. And then what adds to that is that we do not emphasize emotional communication skills for men outside of really just a few interpersonal relationships. It's certainly not enhanced. It's not emphasized in the work community. Mm. And then for many men, they experience in our society a really, hmm, a really justified narrow range of interests. So there's a narrow range of interests. There's a narrow range of support systems. And this focuses a great deal of attention on the common language, which ends up being sports and by connection, their children's sports team. Yeah. I mean, really what you just said, except for that last point, which kind of speaks directly to sports. But, you know, when you were saying that the incidents of the violent outbursts tend to be more with men, it's kind of like, well, duh. Yeah, that's what we see with violent crime in general. Right. So that yeah. tracks. But all those other reasons you listed is why we see that in just general violent crime anyway. So totally, totally makes sense. But again, why? Like, why, yeah. does, why is this happening with oh, parents why? overall? Like, you just think there's such a, like, unspoken rule to just be a, a good human being when you're around other people and around kids. Sports writers have reviewed a number of these cases and determined that the majority of these incidents do emerge from parents feeling, again, that there's been an incorrect call made. Right. So there's that almost an authority figure outside of them 
that is in charge of refereeing or officiating this game that then it, their call disagrees with what the parent feels. So, so they feel like there's an external locus of control that's being put on them. Yes. Yes. So Interesting. what we have here is that that is the common trigger for this anger. And I think sports is a great analogy for life in many ways. And this is one of them. Like life is not fair, people. <laughs> you can't tantrum your way through life, nor should you be doing it at your children's sporting events. Yeah, but that that's, again, if you are coming from a place that has flavors of narcissism where you are the center of the universe yeah, and, and the world does not reflect that back, it's jarring. So you push back against it and you you double down. And that's a that's really something I want to emphasize, too, is that you see in many of these incidents that, that initially parents will just really double down because maybe they're playing out their lack of control in their work environment. Well, here's the person that I'm paying money to to run my kid's sports team. Yeah. You know, or I'm sure. a taxpayer. So this school, blah, 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 that kind of thing. There's also now building on. But why, like you were saying, is that there's a real misalignment of parenting skills in journalists to Shell Barger's article entitled How to Cheer for Your Child that was published in the Wall Street Journal. She quotes Bruce Brown, a teacher, coach, and director of proactive coaching in Kamano Island, Washington. Children often connect parents' attitude about their sports performance to their value as a person. They think parents who yell instructions from the sideline believe children can't figure out what to do on their own. Hurling insults at the ref teaches children that it's okay to challenge authority. Mm. And in Luis Fernando Loso's 2013 book, Beyond Winning, he and co-authors focus on improving the experience of youth sports. So he asserts that criticizing a child's teammate suggests also that it's okay for a child to dump on their teammates too. Yeah. Modeling. A, We're talking about modeling here again. Yeah. Again. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're also teaching your children that there are hierarchies and interpersonal relationships, that it's Ooh, okay yeah. to assert dominance in that way, which is a terrible, terrible message. You know, that goes completely against equanimity and, and equality and egalitarianism. And in a 2013 survey by I-9 Sports, they found that 23% of 400 sports parents said that they or their children had been excluded socially because the kids weren't as good as other players. Hmm. So what that study doesn't say is that objectively true. Right. 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 Yeah. So we don't know if they actually are being left out. That is always a possibility because maybe some coaches aren't great and maybe some parents are dicks as well. And they're not, you know, trying to extend to the other team players. But well, and children are horrible to each other, too. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> they really are. But they're probably learning it from these asshole parents. No, <laughs> certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Or they're not getting good modeling to push back against what they pick up Ab at school yeah, and in absolutely. other environments. I also like the take that John O'Sullivan has. He's the founder and CEO of Changing the Game Project. And he really feels that many parents seem to confuse youth sports with professional sports. Oh, absolutely. And he says, quote, professional sports are for entertainment. The players, coaches, and officials are all adults and they are well paid. The participants in youth sports, including referees, are youths. But parents are investing so much time and money into their child's sporting endeavors that they're losing sight of the plot. Instead of going on vacation or going out to dinner, parents are treating their child's sporting events as a form of entertainment for themselves. End quote. So I love that. I wow. think he nails it. He also opined that this misguided focus can make parents, again, feel overly invested in the outcome of these games. That is fascinating. Yeah. Watch Netflix, folks. <laughs> <laughs> or go out and have a good steak, you know, yeah. but come on. Right. So also in the research, there's a great example that's used about parents indicating and visualizing how they can easily fall down this slippery slope. They can, you know, take a man who experienced and really hated the pressure that he was subjected to as a child from like his overly competitive father. So then that man might unconsciously pressure his son in exactly the same ways without even realizing it, just because that is the behavior with which he is most familiar. And then other parents act out with unresolved frustration or anger over their own childhood sports experiences. Jim Thompson, the founder of Positive Coaching, asserts self-control is tough for parents who are confused about what the goal is mm. in youth sports. Love it. Boom. Yeah, I would say like confused in air quotes, but... Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, I know it's, you know, mostly subconscious, but yeah, confused is a very polite way to put that. But I, I think that's a great sort of end cap on all of that research that we talked about. But I want to get to one more criminal case because we'd definitely be remiss if we did not mention, I mean, who can forget the murder for hire plot of the Texas cheerleader mom? So Wanda Holloway was 37 in 1991. She had grown up in Channel View, Texas, which is outside of Houston, where she continued to live into adulthood with her family up until this crime occurred and afterwards, I believe. And she was described as, quote, slight and pretty with dark shoulder length hair brushed off her face. She had the tighter jawline of so many women who start with little but the determination to better themselves. (laughs) That's so Texas to me. (laughs) (laughs) She had a reputation for being well-regarded member of the community. She worked as a receptionist. She played piano very well in her church. And she had also, quote unquote, married well. So from the information on her background, you get the idea that this was a woman from the wrong side of the tracks, if you will, who really strived not only in adulthood, but also in childhood and her teen years to be an overachiever because she didn't like to be looked down upon from where she came from or the means from what she came from. And that wasn't necessarily something that was rewarded in that town or that community by others, because a lot of people felt like this life is just fine and it's not something to be ashamed of. So it's very interesting how that sort of worked against her when you start hearing about what other community members thought of her growing up in this town and becoming this woman she became. Yeah, it makes me think of a Southern term called tall poppy syndrome, if you've ever heard of that. I have not. So poppies, when they're growing, there's a a homeostasis that a field of poppies will maintain for protect themselves from predators, protect themselves from diseases. They all generally tend to stay about the same size. Mm -hmm. So if a poppy grows taller than the other poppies around it, the poppies will strangle that plant and (gasps) kill it. How dare that poppy? I know. I know. But isn't that fascinating? Because yes. so, you know, that in the South, you know, you'll shake your head and look at somebody go, mm, tall poppy. They didn't want her mm, to, they don't want go. her to succeed. But underneath it, I was giving her a little bit of leeway, but underneath <laughs> it, she was really fixated on a perceived problem that she, I guess, found a solution for, although pretty twisted of a solution. During her junior year, Wanda's daughter, Shanna, had narrowly missed out on a spot on the cheer team, and Wanda concocted a plan to have 38-year-old Verna Heath murdered. Verna was the mother of another girl on the cheer team, and Wanda thought that if Verna was dead, Verna's daughter, Amber, would be so distraught that she would drop out of the team leaving a spot open for Shanna. I I mean... I know, I know. Really, this is what you're going to go with, Wanda? That's like like the murder plot version of the game Mousetrap. Like you're just hoping that all of these contingencies are going to work out, right? I mean, but as someone formerly in entertainment, like does this track with how badly people, like if they just barely missed, like if they were the next girl to be, put in that show or, you know, put on the cheer team. I mean, I wonder if because she was the the last girl to be cut, if that was just like, oh, but we're so close. I don't know. It could be. I mean, you know, I I, again, I just think it's really altered thinking and so many assumptions about what could happen. And then also just that this thinking of the end justifies the means is clearly And, you know, there are indications that, you know, Wanda had a challenging upbringing and Mm -hmm. wanted to do better. Mm -hmm. But there's some real antisocial drive going on here. Clearly, no, no empathy. Like, hmm, well, she'll be so distraught. Distraught. Yeah, her mom's going to be dead. Yeah. Like, because someone's dead. (laughs) Like, uh, yeah. Right. It was just like, okay, how can I think of making her so distraught that she'll leave the team? Yeah. I, I can think of a lot of ways to maybe make a person distraught, but killing her yeah. mother, okay. Pull a Nancy Kerrigan, come on. <laughs> well, maybe this is this will add a little bit to okay. that line of thinking because it seemed as Shanna moved into high school, Wanda began to see Verna, the other girl's mom, as a nemesis. So Verna was similarly aged and grew up privileged in a well-to-do family. And she had even been herself as a as a teen was the baton twirling champion while Wanda felt she wasn't cheerleader caliber. And there's even mm. some reports as to like she grew up in a very strict 
Baptist home where cheerleading outfits were not appropriate. Like, so there, there might have so been. So she this, wasn't like, allowed to yeah. even pursue it. Okay. Right, right. So, you know, they kind of have these parallel lives. Both of their daughters are in high school and there's Wanda sort of comparing and contrasting herself to Verna, who's probably just living her life. And here's where they intersect. And then Wanda comes up with this plan. So Wanda recruited Terry Harper, her first husband's brother to be the hitman. Now, Wanda had been married multiple times, three times total. She had two children, Shane and Shanna, with her first husband. So then she had a brief marriage to an older, wealthier man. That didn't work out. So then she attempted to reconcile with her first husband, but then ended up marrying a third time to another older, wealthier man who owned his own oil field service company. So in statements made against her, Terry recalled that Wanda was very matter of fact when she approached him to kill Verna. She wanted it done. She said she could handle it. Fortunately, Terry yes. had a conscience. <laughs> Good job, Terry. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Terry. And he told police about this plot. Wanda was arrested on January 30th, 1991. And the two officers noted that she showed no reaction at all when they told her she was charged with the solicitation of capital murder. Now, I will temper that with the statement that we make all the time that everybody reacts differently. Yep. So the fact that she didn't react, if she had reacted dramatically, they probably could have had a result. But but that they would have spun that news. too, right? Yeah, it would have been spun, <laughs> right? I just want to cite the Texas Monthly for this beautifully written article that was the main source for this case. And I feel like we use them as another resource and something else. And they just yeah. churn out really great stuff. They really go into depth on the city of Channel View and how culture played into this crime and Wanda's personality, which is really cool, which again, will be in all of our resources. And this quote from the article stood out to me. Quote, the first thing people said about her was that she was always nicely dressed or impeccably dressed or beautifully dressed, which was not necessarily a compliment, but was definitely channel view code for the fact that she had a tendency to hold herself above others. People, and this is a quote from a woman in this article quote, people with our backgrounds typically do not have the money to dress like that. Or if we do, we don't because it's not that important. You would never see Wanda outside bathing a German shepherd or digging in the dirt. <laughs> So yeah, there's another another Southern phrase called putting on airs. So ah. that's their that's their way of saying, oh, she she thinks she's better than us. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was also interesting that this article notes that in this era, in this particular part of the US, cheerleading was a very acceptable way for a young woman to sort of propel herself forward socially, not just with her peers at school, but in relationships that might last into adult positions of status. Oh, yeah. So I thought that was just fascinating just to really like have someone not look, you know, this, I remember this being on tabloid covers and People Magazine and all of that back then, which was felt so surface level, but this article really, you know, dove into these culturally significant issues, which was fascinating. Oh, yeah. I mean, culture plays a big, big role in it. And especially, you know, Southern culture, I mean, Texas is not really the South, it's its own thing, but it has a True. lot of elements of Southern sort of rigid social roles and very much a caste system. I mean, what we're talking about right there is yeah. that, yeah, you we may have money, but we still don't dress that way because it's not appropriate. So right. yeah, and and you're right. I don't think it's I don't think that the cheering thing is what it used to be. Like in, in my day, it definitely was more of this social status. Yeah. And now it's a sport. Like, I oh. mean, you know, which is, we'll talk about in just a second about the success of cheer, the documentary. Yeah. It's Absolutely. huge in its own way. Yeah. But it's a different kind of like these, like it's what they're doing is bionic compared to mm -hmm. what cheerleaders did. 30, 40 years ago, mm -hmm. certainly. Wanda was convicted of solicitation of capital murder in the 1991 trial, and then she was sentenced to 15 years in prison. However, the conviction was overturned when it was discovered that one of the jurors was on probation for a drug-related felony and should never have been allowed to serve. A mistrial was declared. In the second trial, she pleaded no contest, and her attorney successfully negotiated a plea deal. Pretty damn lucky and pretty smart. Yeah. She was sentenced to 10 years in prison with a fine of $10,000. And on top of this, Wanda settled a civil suit filed by Verna's family. So on October 2nd, 1994, Wanda agreed to pay a total of $150,000 to the victims. But get this, Wanda was released on March 1st, 1997, after serving just six months of this 10-year sentence. <sighs> 
The judge ordered her to serve the remaining nine and a half years on probation and to complete a thousand hours of community service. I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I do. I do think that that's pretty sexist. I know. You of know? a 10-year sentence? Yeah. I mean, like, if this had been on. flipped, I have been to parole hearings, you know, where you're watching one parole case come up after the other. And, yeah. you know, these murder for hire things, if it's a man setting it up there, you would never see them get Absolutely. out of that. You just wouldn't. Great point. So, yes, this story has its own media representation and it's one of the best ones. And if by any chance you haven't seen it, please Right now, find a streaming site or go buy the DVD. I think it's even the... on YouTube. I saw it. Oh, yeah. The only thing with YouTube is like the picture quality is usually pretty well, bad. Of course. But, but it's still amazing. It's, and it's the, the name of this is The Positively True Adventures of the Alleged Texas Cheerleader Murdering Mom. What a name. So, I know. Hell of a great. title. <laughs> yeah, it's a great title. It's a very much a black comedy. Yes. Produced for HBO. It was directed by Michael Ritchie and starred the unbelievable Holly Hunter. So Holly good. Hunter is so freaking talented. And in this one, I mean, she's got that Texas thing. Yeah, down. nails it. Nails it. But there's this whole scene when she's in the car and they're trying to get her to say the words directly oh, on right. tape. That I want her, you know, you, you, you got to tell me that you want her killed. And and she's just doing this whole weird evasive thing of like, well, I don't care what you do with it. You can mail her to Alaska. You can, <laughs> this, it's genius. You guys yeah. got to see it. And Bo um, Bridges also, is Terry. What's that? Bo Bridges is Terry, the hitman. <laughs> <laughs> and then Swo is Swoozy Kurtz Verna? No, she's not Verna. I can't remember who she plays. It, she might be Wanda's mom. Oh, I think that's it. That would, but that she, I think she was, would probably yeah. Track. yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's definitely worth a watch. And there's others made on it, but I think this is definitely the best one. So, you know, it, it'd be nice to end an episode with something positive. And yes. you and I, I think we both thought a more positive example of sports parents was highlighted in one of our favorite reality shows, Netflix's Cheer. Yeah. So, in Cheer, we, as we are introduced to Gabby Butler on the show a few years ago, she was a professional cheerleader at the top of her game. I mean, featured in all the cheer publications, sponsored like the literal poster girl for all of these cheer brands and sought after by many college teams, obviously spending time on the champion Navarro College cheer team. And Gabby has been doing competitive cheerleading since she was eight years old. Yeah. So her parents have been very invested in her activity for a long time. And we see a lot of their interaction and them in the show. So I'm wondering, Dr. Scott, what jumped out to you about her parents that felt healthy or healthier? Because, you know, we do see them really involved in her as their daughter, but also the brand and the business of Gabby. So, again, these are really well-produced documentaries. Yeah. The series is, is really great. And there's certainly character arcs. There's all sorts of stuff that are explored. And we don't know objectively how healthy or good their family is. But I was impressed. Like Gabby was quite reserved at the beginning, as mm -hmm. a, a many of them were like, oh, my God, there are cameras on us all the time. But this the relationship with her family. She kind of had like a little bit of an attitude with her parents that just felt very normal. Yeah. You know, she wasn't overly obsequious with anybody. And I just got this idea that there was this sense of normalcy within the family, even though she's already a brand. I mean, you know, I felt that, you know, they discussed things openly and she mm -hmm. seemed tired a lot. Yeah. But then she's got the weight of this brand. You know, she's been doing it for a long time. Well, and they're flying and, her all over the country for like a photo shoot here and then go to cheer practice. And yeah. And and like I didn't even didn't even really get what was happening when they got her. Like because mm. this world, I'm not really familiar right. with this incarnation of cheer in these last few years. I knew it was competitive, but oh, my gosh. Yeah. And they're talking about her in these hushed tones like, mm -hmm. oh, my God, Gabby's going to come yeah. here. Like Gabby, 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 Gabby. And then she shows up and she's a little bit reserved because she's feeling out the whole thing. I just I just kind of love that she had this sort of over it teenage vibe. 
but she <laughs> yeah. also just really took her craft or her art or her skill, or her sport. She takes it so seriously and just seemed like she had a great relationship with her parents, with her siblings, you know, yeah, it I think wasn't, didn't seem fake. It just seemed like this real thing. It so. doesn't seem fake. It, And I think it's a complicated situation because She's an adult, she's in college, but she's still their child. So you have really, I mean, at the core of it, these adults curating her business and her brand. And they're sort of, you know, I think they had some people and representatives and stuff like that, but the parents are doing a lot behind the scenes and have really stopped their lives for her life and her dream. And and I think that's always complicated, whether it's with, you know, child celebrities or what have you. And there are going to be times where you can't stand each other or, you know, you're just, you're literally tired and exhausted. And I think we saw that. But, um, but there was no driving of like, you pull it together. Or, I know you're tired, but you got to do not this. Not in a you mean know, way, like in no. a professional way. It was way. just like, hey, we got to get this done. Yeah, Come on. yeah. You know. but I, I agree. I think, you know, it almost felt like she was outgrowing it, which makes sense if she's been doing this since she was eight. And do you know what she's up to these days? No. She has signed a contract with WWE to do wrestling, which I totally picture. Like she just has that look as one of those yeah, she's girls like, with the black hair and and the great tan and the yes, great makeup yes. and the scary nails. <laughs> right, right. Oh my god! <laughs> All gosh. those girls had scary nails and like who who is Ooh. is it? Mo- Coach Monica. That was the name of yeah. this Coach Monica. Right, like, right. I mean, I just loved them all. Like I went into watching that series thinking that I was going to hate every bit of it, and I was just. <laughs> charmed and then so disappointed you know when you find out in the next season the the terrible terrible event that occurred but also how resilient they all were so that's absolutely love that show so well done but you know what's interesting in all this research just as we were wrapping this up in hindsight i was thinking that there wasn't really anything on the differences between like looking at high stakes sports programs versus more casual local leagues which is interesting because when you realize that today in the u.s youth sports are a $15 billion industry. Right. You know, whenever you throw that kind of money at something, I would think that it would make an impact, but I didn't really see any research looking at that. Yeah. Eric Bean, a certified mental performance consultant and executive board member of the Association for Applied Sports Psychology, had commented on how initially the focus of youth sports was developmental, but now there's this overemphasis on competition and winning because the parents view sports as a pathway to college entrance and scholarships, which is incredibly competitive. And I mean, I just wish we could say this over and over again and people would get it that only less than seven percent of student athletes compete beyond high school yeah yeah you know, so it's that, high stakes that, yeah very high stakes and then again going back to what we were saying if there's a flavor of narcissism in the parents that's just you know does not really take into account realistic yeah. capabilities of themselves that, that they're then projecting onto their kids you know you're setting your kids up for a lot of disappointment what eric bean says on one hand If the stakes are high, right, potential for scholarships or money, you would think that people might be more emotionally invested and possibly triggered like we've seen. But then again, do they have more to lose? So perhaps they're more well-behaved, right? Like it's it's almost like the Disneyland effect, right? You're paying all this money to go in the park so people like behave themselves. (laughs) Yeah. So you don't lose out on this money that you've saved up. I wonder if it's sort of some of that going on. I don't know. It could be. I mean, you have to have that capability as well. I mean, you have to have that capability of being able to rein in your emotions in order to act well. So, hey, are you one of the toxic sports parents out there? If you're a listener of ours, I highly, highly doubt it. But being (laughs) aware of yourself and having insight into your parenting skills is key, whether it's being a sports parent, a cheer parent, or even a pageant parent, you know, self-reflection is key. And if you suspect that you might be a toxic sports parent, you got to ask yourself these questions. Do I regularly yell at my child during games or practices? Do I put pressure on my child to perform well beyond realistic expectations? And do I try to control everything about my child's sporting life? Do I belittle or criticize my child if they make a mistake? Yeah, we covered a lot today that you could probably have some self-reflection on. Yeah. Yeah, but I would think that most of our listeners are wonderful because they listen to us. So, of course, they're wonderful. Of course they are, of course, but they might know someone in their life. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. So maybe if there's an opportunity to help somebody chill the F down, that would be good. And it's going to be good for their kids as well. Hey, folks, thank you for being patient with us on this episode. It's another long one, but we just got totally pulled down the rabbit hole on this one. 
go and stop by our Patreon page, see all the new tiers and all of the benefits. Thank you so much to everybody who's joined the two additional top tiers. We love you guys and we appreciate you. And it's so fun getting to chat with you throughout the I day. I know the Discord thing goes on all day. I love it. <laughs> It does. It I'm does. on there during lunch, looking at what people have said. I'm going yeah. on it at the gym. It's very cool. We have channels for articles. We have channels for YouTube stuff that you guys find. Topic ideas, which is like how this episode was even born. And man, that was a quick turnaround. Yay. So check it and out. Thank you, Abby. Abby, for your expertise. Our Abby, our Abby Blackbird is like helping us out. She's our moderator. She's young and she knows all that stuff. <laughs> she's so hip. <laughs> she's helping us before we right. break a hip. It's it's awesome. We love you guys. All right. That's it. We'll see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, Bye guys. Folks. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience, and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks.